You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to tell you about the Flume Smart Water Monitor that I use at my house. Flume is the perfect device for tracking your water usage in real time with your smartphone. You can see exactly how much water you're using with showers, toilets, sinks, appliances, outside irrigation, any way you use water. Flume lets you set daily, weekly, and monthly water budgets. It also alerts you if there's excessive water use and if it detects a leak. In fact, Right when I hooked up Flume at my house, it alerted me of a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes outside of my water line. Turns out it had been there for months, and I was wasting ridiculous amounts of water and money. I'm not sure when I would have found that without Flume. Flume is super easy to install. You wrap a band around your water meter, just like you put a watch on your wrist. Connect to Wi-Fi, download the app, and you're all set. No plumber needed. Now you can use promo code WATERLOOP to save 15% off of Flume at flumetech.com. With Flume, you'll never be surprised by a water bill again. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Very excited to be joined by my old friend and colleague, Micah Ragland. How's it going, Micah? I'm good, Travis. Thanks for having me on, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah, totally. So just for people's... Uh, background. We were at EPA together for several years, uh, the end of the Obama administration, right? I'm not sure how many That's years right. you, you were there. I was, I, was, I was the director of communications for the Office of Water for like six years, and uh, you were in the uh, public engagement and outreach guy. That's right. I think I overlapped with you with, uh, for about four years there. I was there from 13 to 17. Man, we were just so busy and, and having so much fun. Uh, <laughs> like four years fly, flew by. It definitely did, brother. Yeah, 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 good stuff. Well, we'll talk a little bit about EPA uh, in a while, but I really wanted to to connect with you to talk about Flint. Um, you know, like I mentioned off off air, uh, it's been a highly publicized issue and topic and situation. There's been a lot of people giving their opinions, weighing in as experts, all that good stuff. Um, but I wanted to connect with you because you're you're from Flint. Uh, I am. And I want to hear about about that, about the place, uh, and then we'll talk about your experiences going back there. But yeah, could you yeah, talk, yeah. could you talk first about just just being from Flint? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a proud Flintstone. That's what folks <laughs> from Flint uh, call ourselves. I'm actually a uh, fifth generation uh, Flintstone. My uh, my great grandparents uh, moved to Flint in the uh, late. 50s, early 60s, along with, with my grandparents. And so, um, and seven generations total of my family. Uh, okay. And so um, it's, uh, it's a place where I was born, where I was raised. And I still have close to 30 relatives uh, who actually live within the city limits of, of Flint itself, uh, mostly on the north side uh, of town. And um, it's just a place that's uh, always been uh, near and dear uh, uh, to my heart. Um, it's a place that I thoroughly enjoyed growing up. Uh, I, I grew up there in the, in the, in the late seventies through, through the eighties. And, um, it was, and still remains a place where people just have, um, a high sense of pride. It's a blue collar community. And now not a lot of folks know, but GM was actually founded, uh, in Flint and, uh, and the UAW, uh, actually, um, held their first, uh, walkout and strike uh, in Flint. Um, and wow. so, you know, um, it's, a, it's an area that has traditionally uh, a pretty strong uh, manufacturing uh, background, blue collar community, uh, strong represented union labor workforce there. Um, and uh, was just a, a really a, a, a fun place to grow up uh, when, when I was growing up there in, in, in the 70s and 80s. And of course, you know, they've had challenges uh, going up to, you know, the last probably three to four, if, if not five decades. But uh, it's a community that's very, very tight knit uh, and, and very resilient um, um, 
um, as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I heard, first heard that term Flintstones maybe watching like Michigan State basketball. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, seen, yeah, yeah. Like Mateen Cleaves is one guy that jumps out in my mind. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is, that, is that right? He's a Flint, That's right. Flint yeah, Mateen. Yeah, yeah. Mateen's a, a Flintstone and he's uh, still uh, heavily involved in the community uh, there. Uh, Maurice Peterson was also team that won that national championship i think they won it in uh 2000 and uh and they had uh, i think four of their five starters uh from that team were were, were from flint uh, so uh, it great great uh athletic uh tradition there you know uh the flintstones from uh michigan state uh are, are from the area uh, glenn rice is from the area um you know a famed uh yeah. player I played on the national championship team at the University of Michigan when they won it uh, back in, I believe, 1988. And um, you have some other folks from there, Super Bowl champion, uh, Carl Banks is, okay. is, is and uh, Clarissa Fields, uh, you know, current, uh, I want to say heavyweight uh, boxing champion in, in the women's field is is, is from Flint. And uh, she's heavily involved in the community there. So it's, it's definitely a place where we uh, put a lot of pride in uh in, in, in athletics and, and we're very proud of folks who, who make it out and um, perform at, at, at such a high level. And it's been going on for, 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 for generations. Um, my father actually uh, uh, was a collegiate uh, football player and, and he uh, actually played uh, uh, competitively with the Ryzen family. They're also oh, Okay. Like, a, yeah, yeah. like yeah, Andre, so. Andre Risen. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, uh, yeah, yeah. So he actually, uh, he and Andre Risen's, uh, uncle, uh, Mo Risen, uh, actually played, uh, high school, um, football together. And Mo Risen was a phenomenal athlete as was his, his nephew, Andre. And now Andre's son, uh, is, is, uh, is on the rise as, as well and, and making a name for himself. So it's, it's, it's definitely one of those places where, um, you, you have a lot, a lot of pride in terms of our of, uh, of the athletes who come out, and and one thing that I've always uh, really really enjoyed, especially growing up in Flint, you know, in, in the summer times, there are just so many uh, professional athletes from the NFL, NBA. We even had a few folks uh, who, who made it um, uh, to 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 the MLB ranks who would just always make it a point to like come back to the mm. community. Um, invest in the community, uh, you know, not just with, uh, with, with, with charity, but also with, with, with their time. Um, I can, I have just a, a ton of memories as a kid growing up and, um, you know, going to Glenn Rice's basketball camp and, and things of that nature. And it was, uh, it's just a lot of good memories. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And, and so what's the population of Flint or, you know, or what kind of was it at that time? Because it's, yeah. not, it's not a big place. So you have these like, you know, premier athletes, big, big name athletes come back. And yeah, I could see how they're just part of the community then and just kind of out on the street, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a pretty small community. I think when I was growing up there uh, in the 70s and 80s, it Probably had a population anywhere in the you know the one thirty to one forty range. Um, it's sadly enough, uh, Flint is actually one of the uh, fastest shrinking mm-hmm. uh, metropolitan areas uh, in, in the country. And of course, you know they've had a, a lot of hardships the last few decades with um, with uh, you know starting in the sixties and seventies with with GM doing some of their restructuring and moving uh, a large portion of their manufacturing base actually out of Flint into other states and even into other countries. So, you know, that's contributed. Um, they've had some other woes that they've had to deal with, with, uh, with a shrinking tax base that's really limited uh, the local government's ability at times to, to, to serve the constituency. And so when I was growing up there, you know, it's probably, you know, 130, 140, 150. Uh, but right now, I think the population's hovering somewhere in the high 80 thousand range maybe wow. the thousand range yeah and so and at its peak uh you know when my grandparents and uh great-grandparents uh you know uh, first moved there you know nearly six seven decades ago at its peak it had a population of over two hundred thousand. so that just kind of gives you context you know within you know three to four generations uh, of just how much the city has uh, unfortunately uh contracted from a, from a population standpoint yeah yeah and so you know, all this is going on over time as, as the population shrinking and they've gone through different hardships and losing jobs and companies and all this kind of thing. And then, mm-hmm. you know, 
I think it's almost a common phrase now that Flint happened, right? That's what people say right. outside yeah. of that area, referring to that the terrible drinking water crisis with lead. Um, yeah. And for people, what did you hear when this happened? You know, yeah. uh, when the news hit, what was the news and how did that affect you? You know, what was, what was yeah. going on? Yeah, you know, it was it was really interesting time. You know, one thing uh, that has uh, that I always remember about the onset um, of the crisis was there was a little bit of a prelude to it at, at the grassroots level. You know, they initially made um, the switch uh, from for for years. Uh, I want to say over fifty years, uh, Flint had been. Uh, sourcing its water uh, from uh, from Detroit's municipal water system, and which has one of the you know cleanest uh, uh, and efficient uh, water systems uh, in, in the country. And uh, in April of 2014, uh, because the city um, was on the prelude of, of bankruptcy and actually had fallen in a receivership, they um, uh, the, the state appointed an emergency manager. An emergency manager came in with a with a mandate to. Uh, cut the city's um, uh, spending with the goal of, of balancing their budget and, and switching the water system from Detroit over to uh, Flint's own municipal system was was one of the cost saving measures. And I remember in the lead up to that, there were several conversations. You know, the emergency manager that the state appointed uh, was holding city council meetings, and um, and it just wasn't elected officials on the city council and then the then mayor. Um, and others who, who had some concerns about this, but it was residents themselves. You know, I think a few people, uh, I think a lot of people outside of Michigan take for granted just how prideful uh, Michiganders are about their water. You know, we have a lot of lakes here. Uh, it's a big part of our, not only our, our summer recreation, but our winter recreation. And so I think, you know, on an average, uh, residents here in Michigan uh, have a little bit of a higher aptitude and understanding of, of water, uh, water safety, and then just the overall role that water plays um, uh, in our lives, uh, not just from you know a vitality standpoint, but just also from a recreational uh, standpoint uh, as well. So in the lead up to that, you know, I, I would have residents, uh, I would have some of my uh, friends that I grew up with um, and, and some of my cousins, you know, text me and and just randomly call me and say, hey, you know, they're talking about switching our water system from Detroit to Flint, and that like that would be horrible. And this and, was and this was happening. You were at EPA at that time. I just want to make that, I was. that point. So yeah. you're you're living in yeah. DC and you're helping EPA with with public outreach and public engagement on environmental and public health protection measures. And so right. you're starting to hear about this at that in that with that context. Yeah, and so it was kind of like a little bit of a slow trickle. Uh, up until they 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 made the switch, and like I said, you know, I had folks reaching out to me uh, expressing concern about it, and and I think one of the things, you know, uh, Travis, that I think um, really gave people angst, and as I, you know, I'm not, I don't have a scientific uh, uh, background. Most of my career, I've, I've spent doing, you know, public outreach and, and community organizing, but uh, one of the things that gave people a lot of angst was, is you know, traditionally. Um, uh, the, the Flint River, which, which flows through Flint and, and other communities uh, throughout Genesee County, which is the county that Flint is, is, is based in, um, you know, has, uh, has been used for industrial purposes and it doesn't have the best reputation for like having the cleanest water. As a matter of fact, when you, when you fish uh, on the river, uh, at least it was this way when I was growing up as a kid, you know, you would see signs that would say, you know, it's, it's fine to fish, but, you know, there'd be recommendations of not taking the fish home and cooking them and and consuming them. Mm. Uh, and so, you, you know, you have residents hearing, well, you know, you're going from water be sourced from uh, Port Huron, which is one of the cleanest freshwater systems in the world, <laughs> to the Flint River, which has, you know, uh, just a horrible reputation in terms of, you know, uh, being associated with industrial waste, not being clean, and not even being safe to, like, really fish out of. And so, you know, residents uh, and a lot of my family members uh, immediately got upset. So for me, you know, when the switch happened, for me, it kind of happened like in two phrases, uh, 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 phases. One was the lead up where people were kind of reaching out to me and saying, hey, you know, they're thinking about doing this. So this would be like crazy. And then when it actually happened, 
and then you had the the the, the immediate um, occurrences with you know people having you know water that uh, had uh, bad odors that were discolored and things of that nature. And so for me, it was kind of like a double whammy uh, in, in those initial phases when the, when the crisis first happened. Mm. And so then you know once the switch was made and lead started finding its way into people's homes and into people's water and in, into their bodies, you know, what are you, what are you hearing? Obviously the news starts exploding across the country and stuff. Yeah. People, a lot of people yeah. saw those stories, but what are you hearing, you know, firsthand from family and friends there? Yeah, there are three stories that, that, that stick out to me in terms of what I was, uh, in terms of what I remember, you know, they, they made the switch in April of, of 2014. And then around May or June, I started uh, getting messages from, from family members. Um, some of my cousins were reaching out to me and saying, you know, hey, you know, I'm, my water still is fine. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I was just talking to, you know, one of my neighbors down the street and they're saying it's discolored and it's this and it's that. It has a weird odor to it. Um, you know, and kind of like asking me for guidance on like, you know, advice that they could give, you know, uh, their neighbors on what to do. And, and of course I said, Hey, look, you know, um, the state, um, you know, department of, of natural resources or environmental protection in, in, in Michigan, they have, you know, primary jurisdiction over that, you know, make sure you pass that along, um, to your neighbors and like have them trickle that up. So that was kind of like, second phase kind of turned to it, it, it spreading. And then my relatives coming to me and say, well, you know, actually I'm having that problem now, oh, you know, wow. actually, you know, discoloration in my water, it, it uh, you know, it doesn't smell right. And, uh, and I'm concerned um, about using it. And then it kind of just, you know, um, over the next several weeks and months uh, just kind of blew up into something that was, that, that was, that was more widespread. Mm. Um, and something that started to catch the attention of, you know, not just local media uh, in that mid-Michigan uh, market in Flint, but around the state and then eventually um, around um, around the country. And so for me, it was just kind of one of those uh, gradual trickles of things where relatives were reaching out to express concern for their neighbors and they were reaching out to kind of express concerns for their own health mm. And asking for advice on how to safeguard themselves, and and as they were doing that, you know, simultaneously, um, others in the community were experiencing, unfortunately, those same hardships, and um, and the story really, uh, really picked up uh, and, and took off. One of the things, you know, I want to flag, Travis, that yeah. I, actually one of the biggest travesties that came out of the Flint water crisis is is that you know um, that outcry for help and assistance and for attention to the issue, you know, it actually took, you know, up to a year and a year and a half for really to get on the national radar, you know, um, like I said, they made the switch in April of 2014, uh, but the state of Michigan did not declare a state of emergency until almost a year and a half later in the fall of 2015. Um, and once the state declared uh, its state of emergency, um, is when, you know, you, you it started getting more national attention. Celebrities were coming to Flint uh, with, you know, donations of, of bottled water and, and, and other necessities. And then after that, you know, the, the, the federal government, um, as is tradition, normally the state has to declare emergency first, or at least uh, the feds tend to defer to the state and um, sure. declare their emergency first. And then the feds will, you know, supplement that uh, with their own. Um, but the fact that it took the state a year and a half to declare a state of emergency, I think is one of the biggest travesties that's like come out of this that, you know, for up to, you know, 16 to 18 months, people were, you know, uh, not only having to deal with this water, but they essentially felt like they weren't having their concerns, um, addressed in a, in a timely fashion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think the worst, one of the worst elements of the whole story too, is the kids, right? And yeah. and uh, children that are like six and under, I think, are the most yeah. susceptible to the harmful impacts of lead, especially on their neurological yeah. development and all that stuff. And the fact yeah. that that they were um, subjected to to lead for that long before you know the sirens really went off, uh, it's heartbreaking, yeah. you know. 
Um, it really is. It really is. I mean, and to your point, I mean, uh, you know, children under the age of six uh, were, 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 were at risk. Uh, there are pregnant women uh, who are at risk. Unfortunately, I had a friend who uh, was uh, a dear family friend who, who was pregnant at the time. And unfortunately, she miscarried mm. uh, during that time. Um, a lot of people don't know, but Flint has a very high um, senior population. Uh, one of the things that has um, uh, happened over uh, probably at least the last two to three decades is, is you know, as uh, the economic situation in, in Flint has worsened, what's happening is, is um, you're having families, uh, and my family is probably an example, you know, uh, there are four generations of my family that lived in Flint before I was born. And because there just wasn't a lot of economic opportunity as I was leaving high school and going to college, you know, I didn't return to the city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but my parents stayed, uh, my, uh, my grandparents stayed and my great grandparents stayed. And, and, and that's what's happening with, 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 with other families in Flint too, is where the older generations are, are remaining there, but the younger generations are leaving. And so you have, um, you know, this, this, this disproportionate, our, uh, amount of, uh, our high number of seniors who, who live in, in, in the city. And so, you know, you have seniors who are vulnerable, you have, you know, children under the age of six and then, and women who are pregnant and nursing who are, who are populations who were, um, uh, unfortunately, um, adversely impacted by this. And those impacts are still being realized, uh, today, the New York times, uh, came out with a great piece. I want to say it was in October or November of this year. And it was just talking about since the five years now going on six years, uh, since the crisis, um, how the city of Flint and the county of, of Genesee County, where Flint is located, um, has uh, has uh, seen a, a huge spike in the number of, of, of uh, special needs children uh, in, in their education system. Um, and, and a lot of it's being attributed to the uh, to the to the impacts that that lead had um, on these children. Um, uh starting back with the, the crisis um, uh, in 2014. Yeah. So this is, this is unfolding. It's hitting national news. Uh, you know, EPA at the federal level, you know, from D.C. is starting to turn its attention to this and get involved in the situation. Uh, I know EPA is sending, you know, officials and staff, regional folks, people from D.C. up there. Um, at what point do you go to Flint and, and what role do you take? And, and what's that like, you know, being from there, but being, you know, sent by your employer, by the federal environmental protection agency to be part of the response? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was something that I really had a lot of mixed emotions about, you know, um, you know, the, the state of Michigan declared their state of emergency, like I said, somewhere around October, November of, 2015, so year and a half after the crisis uh, happened, and then President Obama uh, issued the federal uh, state of emergency in January of um, of 2016. And so, as soon as he declared uh, his state of emergency, um, the federal government organized and sent resources uh, to Flint uh, to help the city recover, uh, with the goal of getting their water system uh, back to normal. One of the things that I was charged with when 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 I went there was, and I had no idea it was going to turn into the, the long term uh, project that it did. But um, one of the things um, uh, our former boss uh, Gina McCarthy, who headed up the the agency for most of the time that you and I were there, uh, asked me to do since I was from there was to, like just go and do an assessment and see if, in fact. Uh, information was being communicated at a grassroots level, uh, not only that people were being touched at a grassroots level, but they were getting information in a way that they could digest it and understand it and then like act on in a way that would safeguard um, their health. Um, um, and so uh, when I, f- I, I first went up to Flint uh, in January of 16, right after the declaration was, uh, the, the federal emergency declaration was declared and I did an assessment and I, I met with a few nonprofits who are on the ground and a few other organizing agencies. And there was actually a, a good infrastructure that existed in the city in terms of, uh, you know, folks knocking on doors, getting out in the community and things of that nature. Um, 
but there were some things that um, that I noticed with 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 uh, with the community organizing and outreach that I felt like the federal government uh, could assist with. And one was getting, uh, you know, uh, information to those groups to pass out uh, to to their networks, and then uh, also coordinating with them from a from a cross sectional standpoint uh, when they are going out in community and canvassing the communities, like having an EPA representative with them or someone from the federal government. There with them to to help residents as they're as they're looking to have some of their their questions answered on how to navigate um, the system in terms of, of getting assistance and then more importantly how they can how they can safeguard themselves and so initially you know I thought this assessment was only going to take you know like two to three weeks and you know I kind of swoop in we figure it out and and we work it from there and and then you know I leave and, and go back to D.C. but. As we got on the ground, we just saw that the need uh, was a lot more uh, severe than than we originally um, anticipated. One of the stories that I always tell is is that um, when I first got on the ground in January and February of, of, of sixteen, you know, we were already a year and a half into the crisis, and so I was under the assumption that every family in Flint knew that it was not safe. Uh, to drink uh, unfiltered tap water um, just because, you know, it's been on the local news and the national news and you have all this activity happening in the city. To me, I just felt like, uh, you know, it would be impossible not to know that. But um, one of the first canvassing uh, trips that I took uh, with with a group that was was organizing and literally just going door to door, knocking on doors asking residents if they were okay, asking them if they had questions about uh, the crisis and then giving them advice on how to safeguard themselves. And then if they needed assistance, also working with them to make sure that they got connected with the, with the appropriate agencies. And um, about a week or two before I started canvassing, the group that I was canvassing with, they had been out in the field uh, a few weeks prior to me getting there. And they told me a story uh, about how they, they knocked on a family's door uh, on the east side of town and on the east side of Flint, you have um, a relatively high uh, immigrant population, farm work population, and, and there's a somewhat of a concentration of, 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 of Latino Americans who who live there. And they knocked on the door. Uh, a mother came to the door. She had three young children. They were all under the age of three. Uh, it looked like she was pregnant. Um, and they asked her... Um, if she would like a water filter so that they could put it on her faucet, she invites them in. She tells them that she doesn't have a water faucet. She takes them to where her kitchen sink is. And she actually has a lawn hose running through her kitchen sink uh, under the house, um, into, under, underneath the house, into the house. And so the, the filter that they had wouldn't be adequate for that. And she wasn't fluent um, in English. Fortunately, they had a Spanish speaker with them. And as they were having a conversation with her, they realized that she didn't understand that, you know, a state of emergency had been declared by the state and the feds and that it wasn't safe uh, to be drinking uh, unfiltered water. And unfortunately, uh, she and her family had been drinking uh, the unfiltered water um, uh, for, for the prior, prior year and a half. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. So, you know, uh, hearing stories like that. Um, and, and being on the ground and, and seeing some of that stuff for myself just let, let me to know that, you know, it wasn't something that we could just swoop in and, you know, for two or three weeks, like, uh, run ads or do media interviews or, you know, run things on our website. Like the need was just so critical there for information that we really had to deploy uh, a heavy human resource presence or like we had people on the ground engaging the community knocking on doors, uh, going to events, um, and, and, and things of that nature, just so like we could kind of do like that basic level uh, of information. And then once we kind of got the information out in the community and really transitioning uh, that into making sure that people were taking uh, the appropriate steps to, to, to safeguard themselves. Yeah. Wow. So how long do you end up being there? So I was there about eleven months. So okay. I, I pushing pushing a year. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I knew, I knew yeah. I was missing you in DC. You know, we, we, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I, I knew you were off there dealing with this important situation, but uh, yeah, didn't get to see you around the office much. So eleven months. I mean, like eleven you said, months. You thought yeah. you thought you were going for like a couple of weeks, and you're there. You're there pushing a year, and I mean, my sense also is that because there was this breakdown in. I think trust the public, you know, didn't know who they could trust, what they could trust, you know, from their local government to the state, to the feds, to anybody telling them information. It wasn't something you could just go in and, and give some quick directions. You really had to, to stay there. Right. I mean, is that a big part of it? Yeah. Yeah. That was a huge part of it. I think uh, you laid it out really well. You know, one of the first things, you know, we kind of worked in phases uh, when we got there, The, the, the first thing that we really put a heavy emphasis on was, and I did this uh, in particular was, was um, uh, I really went to every nonprofit and foundation uh, that had a, had a significant presence in Flint and, you know, introduced myself to them and, you know, proactively um, offered up ideas to them to where I thought the EPA could help from a grassroots level, got feedback from them on what they were doing, and then tried to work with them to figure out where we could kind of marry our resources and, 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 and coordinate where we weren't duplicating efforts and we were being as efficient as we could. And, you know, um, a big part of that was also trying to build credibility. I knew that the EPA just couldn't sweep in, swoop in on our own and, and start like knocking on people's doors and expect there to be instant credibility that we were going to have to like partner with organizations that were already on the ground that were already respected and like had the influence that we were working against. Like that was really phase one. And I think it goes to your point of the fact that we just needed to, you know, uh, really establish a, a level of, of, of trust. And so, you know, we really spent the first four to eight weeks doing that. And then I would say the middle four to six months was just really just us implementing a massive, um, you know, on the ground canvassing campaign, you know, um, the way we would do it. Uh, we, we came up with a list of, I want to say it was 541, uh, locations throughout the city, uh, that we would canvass. Um, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty precise number for you to remember. I want to think it's about 541, not about 550. It's like 541. I think you got it in your head, man. Yeah. Yeah, brother. I tell you, I, I probably still have the Excel, uh, spreadsheet too on my on my computer <laughs> and uh, it was funny when we first built the list out you know it was like a list of 25 locations and of course as you're going in the community you're talking to people and they're saying oh well you should you know check out this church mm. you should check this beauty salon or you should you know go to this community center or you should go to this retirement facility and so literally in a matter of less than a month we probably built that list out from uh, 30 locations to, to over 500 and um, and what we would do was is we would kind of we would do two different canvassing um, uh, campaigns throughout the week. So every Tuesday through Thursday, what we would do, uh, a group of us about uh, I see at our peak, there was probably, um, you know, 30 to 40 federal um, uh, workers on the ground who were just devoted exclusively to doing outreach in the community. And we would just drive in our cars to those 541 locations talk to folks, make sure they had the information they need, but also kind of use it as a, as a, as a point to also um, get a pulse on where the community was um, at that time, just so we could make sure that our, our outreach efforts and our messaging uh, was, was being adapted and evolving to, to meet the community's need. So we would kind of do that in, in, in the middle of the week and we'd do that Tuesdays through Thursdays. And then we would spend our Saturdays and Sundays partnering with with other organizations uh, for their canvassing uh, efforts. So, you know, we would go out with different church organizations, different community organizations, and we would essentially pair up, you know, it'd be someone from the community with someone from the federal government, and they would just, you know, uh, be knocking on doors and things of that nature. And and most of the um, most of the weekend canvases were devoted to like hitting up the hardest parts of the city. So like the north side of town from Flint is, and that's the part of town that I'm actually from, uh, you know, has the highest concentration of poverty. It's, it's the most blighted part of town. Um, unfortunately, it's uh, the most crime ridden part of town. And then I think throughout Flint, you have anywhere, I think it's around 20 housing projects. And most of those housing projects are, are concentrated on the north side. So we really 
you know, just do that concentration of really like hitting up the most vulnerable populations uh, on the weekends. And then we would spend that Tuesday to Thursday uh, block uh, canvassing uh, other sections uh, of the city. And so uh, it was something that, you know, reaps uh, a, a good deal of benefits from us. You know, we, 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 we certainly went in phases with things. First, it was just making sure that people knew that drinking um, uh, unfiltered water was unsafe. And then it transitioned to making sure that they um, uh, knew where to get resources from. You know, there were a lot of different water depots uh, throughout uh, the, the, the city because Flint has such a high concentration Poverty, not a lot of people know this, but uh, I, last I checked, over 45% of the population in Flint lives below the poverty line. Uh, and the other 55% isn't doing, uh, you know, uh, that much better. And so, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a community where you have a lot of low-income residents and not everyone has a car or a bike or access to public uh, transit. And so, you know, it would be, uh, as we were going out on our canvases for families that didn't have uh, access to transportation. Uh, we worked with the with the city and the state and the feds on making sure that we could uh, orchestrate deliveries to homes uh, of resources for for families um, in, in need. And so it kind of went from just educating, providing resources, and then it to it just being something to where we were also doing those checkpoints. Like I said, just to kind of get a pulse on the community, uh, just to make sure that. Um, uh, the information and the resources that we were providing were actually meeting the community's need. Yeah. And so you kind of went through this for that 11 months, just kind of just re reaching out, talking to people, getting information out there. I mean, I remember being back in DC and working feverishly on flyers and language, and yeah. simplifying language and getting translations lined up and just kind of the materials to get out to, to help um, you all that were on the ground up there. Um, yeah. And then I guess I guess that eleven months came to the to the end in big part because the Obama administration came to an end, right? And you were there as, as a political appointee, so your time serving kind of was up. Um, That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, after the election in November of of twenty sixteen, we really had to get into transition mode and, and working with the incoming administration on just kind of briefing them on uh, you know the work that we had done to date, our recommendations for actions that we thought. That they should take uh, moving forward and then also working to try and like uh, facilitate introductions between the incoming administration and um, uh, people on on the ground. And so we, we had to do a pretty quick, um, abrupt shift um, after election. We would have had to have done it regardless of, of who won the election. Um, but I think it was a little bit more abrupt since it was a change in party. And things of that nature. There have been rumors that if, um, if Secretary Clinton had won, that I think she was going to ask a number of folks to kind of uh, stay on board for like transitional purposes. Um, with there uh, being a change in party, um, we didn't have those expectations. And so we really just wanted to try and um, position ourselves as best as we could uh, to kind of help facilitate. Um, uh, a, a seamless transition uh, in between uh, the administrations and the parties. Yeah, sure thing. Under very understandable. Um, and so then you had to kind of. How was it for you? You know, having to kind of walk away from from your community while things weren't fixed. Yeah, you know, it was really painful, and it was it was painful on a number of levels. And uh, I think first and foremost, I walked away with. Um, with a, with a sense of disappointment because the problem had not been fixed to, to, to that point. And so, uh, you know, I felt that we were, we were leaving um, at a time when, like, there was more work that, that needed to be done. So it was disappointing on that level. It was also hurtful because I felt like our time there, we were really making inroads. Um, you know, not only were we helping to safeguard uh, people and their health, but we were actually, um, because we were on the ground and because we were making, uh, establishing relationships, we were figuring out other ways that we could help the city and, and, and get uh, federal resources uh, into the city to help them with some other longstanding issues that they have been having from an economic standpoint, uh, been having with the education system, 
with their transit system, many other issues. Um, and so it, it, it was really hurtful to like walk away um, as we, you know, we're, we're still working to make progress on that front. And then just on a personal level, um, you know, I, I had a, a lot of my who live there and friends, you know, they just don't follow politics and really understand um, uh, government activity mm. that much. They really didn't understand the fact that I had to leave, that like I didn't have a choice. Uh. And so really, really, really hard, like having those conversations and, and telling people, you know, because, um, you know, we have a new party and a new administration coming in, um, you know, we, we have to that's just just how it is. And so, you know, it was, it was multiple levels that it was it was really, really, really tough. Um, um, and uh, so, yeah, that's probably one of the toughest moments in, in my in my professional career. It, it was only, you know, exacerbated by the fact that I just had, you know, personal ties uh, to, to the community as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. A little bit of a side question. You know, you mentioned like celebrities coming to Flint. Um, we've seen politicians go to Flint. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those cases where water is actually getting attention from these, these two groups of people in a way. Um, what, what do you think about that? What, what's, the, what is, what's the value or impact positive or negative of having, you know, celebrities pop up to Flint? Um, maybe there's more negative when it's politicians popping to Flint and using, I don't, I don't know. It's just kind of. That's a really open open question there. Yeah. I was wondering what you think. Yeah, no, it's a, it's really a good question. You know, when I when I was on the ground uh, in Flint, I was always happy uh, when a celebrity uh, would come to town and uh, make use of their time to um, give a donation or just make use of their time to help uh, get people's minds off of uh, the fact that they were living through a through, through a through a water crisis, and so. Uh, in a lot of respects, it was really mostly uh, positive because folks were coming there with good intentions. They were coming there with resources, and they were coming there uh, with the intention of really lifting people's spirits. And more specifically to 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 your question, I think it really has elevated the conversation on just the importance that that water plays uh, in our everyday lives. You know, we just can't we we can't function. Um, without it, you know, whether it's, you know, washing our hands, taking a bath, cooking, you know, drinking it, um, you know, washing our cars, watering our lawn, you know, there are just things that there are a lot of things that, that, uh, that people take for granted, uh, about it, at least on a nationwide level. Like I said, here in, in Michigan, because water is such a big part of our lives, um, you know, being at the epicenter of, of the Great Lakes and things of that nature, I think we probably have a better understanding of it here in Michigan than, than, than perhaps some other states. But I, I think in that regard, it really helped to elevate the conversation and bring in, uh, bring attention to it. Uh, one thing that I think came out of it that, that was really uh, a positive as well is, that, you know, Flint isn't the only, unfortunately, it's not the only uh, major, um, uh, municipality or urban area, uh, in the country that's, you know, been dealing with this issue. You know, you have cities in the Northeast corridor, whether, you know, it's Baltimore or Newark and, and other cities around uh, the country that are, that are dealing with this issue. And so I think Flint in a lot of ways helped, um, you know, elevate the conversations, um, and, in other communities. And, and when people hear about, lead issues in Baltimore or Newark or in other areas, uh, they understand that it's a, that it's a serious issue. And it, it can kind of be one that's hard to really, uh, understand. Um, and, um, and, but, you know, if, if, if you, um, if you consume lead in your body, I mean, it, it can actually have fatal consequences, uh, yeah. uh for you. Um, and so, um, and so, you know, I, I think having celebrities come and, and rally was 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 actually a good thing for 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 Flynn and the city and, and the residents. It was a good thing for me too, because I'll tell you, just to be honest with you, brother, you know, when you're uh, on the ground and you're and you're canvassing and you're just hearing all these um, stories of of the struggle that people are going through, um, you know, it actually helped to lift my spirits when I knew 
celebrities were coming and they were actually coming in a lot of ways to, you know, um, you know, supplement the work that we were doing. And so uh, not only was it like uh, uplifting for a lot of residents, but, you know, it was uplifting for um, a lot of the the, the federal employees who are on the ground just really trying trying to to assist the community as, as, as best we could. Yeah, yeah. The people, the people there in that community wanted their voices heard, like you said, for a year, year and a half, whatever. Having those celebrities come helps to get that, you know, really shine a light on on what's happening uh, and get their yeah. voice out. I could hear that. Um, you made some other good points I really like about the idea that Flint may have permanently raised the bar, uh, you know, on awareness about water issues, awareness about drinking water, and how important it is and how vulnerable it is. Um, yeah. And yeah, I know that when I was on the communications end, as Flint was happening, <laughs> reporters in every city across the country wanted the data on lead levels in their local water system. You know, I mean, yeah. and, and the big, big outlets like the Wall Street Journal wanted to know all well, they wanted all the national data on violations of the lead rule and all of yeah. that. So it definitely... Uh, yeah horrible situation but it did help to raise awareness and and create awareness and scrutiny in all these other places which is is good um, yeah yeah what uh so where do things stand now um you know you, you don't have to take me back through the whole past three or four years but i, I don't know if people realize that flint's not over you know? yeah yeah you know the crisis uh, still goes on you know I'll, I'll start with the good news the good news is is that you know uh, consistently for the last um, probably two years, maybe a little bit shorter than that, the, the city has been uh, consistently uh, testing below, I want to say it's the 15 parts per billion threshold um, that essentially, you know, sets the designation as to whether or not your your water is, is, is technically safe to drink. And I think for the last several months, if not at least the last few years, uh, the city has been testing below that threshold, which is which is which is a good sign. Um, you know, there's um, a, a lot of investment that's gone into um, uh, improving the the, the 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 water infrastructure there. Um, that's ongoing, though it, it's it's not complete yet. Um, so the good news is is that um, you know from a technical standpoint, uh, the, the water uh, is. Um, is, is, is much safer than it was when, 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 when the crisis broke out. However, there's still um, things happening in the city uh, to where people are having to uh, safeguard themselves. Um, as part of uh, the federal investment in Flint, um, the feds gave the state of Michigan um, millions of dollars to replace Flint's um, uh, lead service lines. Uh, and that construction is ongoing. And, and what happens is, and it's supposed to be complete, I believe this year, I think it's slated to be complete by the summer or fall uh, of this year. Um, but yeah, when that was, you, that's always one thing that's amazed me is I'm like, man, how are all those lines not already gone out of the ground okay. and nice new yeah. safe stuff in there, you know, like a, yeah. a crisis of this magnitude, uh, uh, injustice of this magnitude Yeah, that, that yeah. Like, and I know resources went in, but it's it it still just you know shocks me that it just hasn't yeah. all been gutted and done. Yeah, there were so many complications on the front end uh, with that. I think a uh, few things that I remember coming to mind was you know weather is always a, a factor here in Michigan, especially once you get past you know um, September October, it starts to get cold pretty quick, and so. You know, uh, workers out in the field are, are somewhat limited with that. Another thing is, as you know, and this goes to, you know, the, the city losing resources um, at a pretty fast rate uh, over the last, you know, few decades um, is um, as the city's population was shrinking, so was their city government. And a lot of record keeping as to where those service lines were and um, things of that nature. Uh, it took it took weeks and months to, to kind of get that. Uh, in a in a good place, and then the other complication um, uh, that was happening was is that um, as you're having contractors come into the city uh, to do that work, uh, there was a lot of resentment from from residents. And I think rightfully so that you know if there was going to be an economic benefit uh, associated. 
hit it with the recovery uh, than resident should you kind of have, you know, like a, a first bite at that apple and, and have an apple, apple opportunity to, to, to compete uh, for those services. And so making sure that contractors that are coming in and, and removing those lines are actually like hiring uh, Flint residents to, to do the work was was another thing um, that that kind of um, led to um, it moving at a, a slower pace than I think a lot of folks would uh, would have liked. Um, but fortunately, you know, it, it, it has been taking place over the last few years. It's not done yet. And since it isn't complete yet, uh, people still have to safeguard themselves because as those lines are being removed from the ground, what they're doing is they're breaking lead off and they're, they're still uh, existing uh, in, in, in the service lines. And so until the work is, you know, complete, um, I don't think folks can universally say that the, that the water is, is safe to drink there. Another complication in Flint is, is that, you know, the, the housing uh, infrastructure in the city is so old. I think the first that I ever lived in in Flint was built in, I want to say it was built like in 1922. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you have like these older homes, they have older internal uh, plumbing. And so even if you're fixing the, the water service line, some of the homes, because the, the piping is is so old, uh, once the water hits the home, you know, you're, you're, you're still uh, potentially at risk. Um, and so just making sure that folks, you know, are, are using filters or replacing um, you know, uh, the plumbing that's central uh, to, to their home is is another step that's um, having to be uh, undertaken. And and the feds have provided resources for that. And, and that work is is ongoing. So to your point, no, the crisis isn't over. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, there's definitely been progress. But, you know, we're coming up on on celebrating the um, the uh, the six year anniversary uh, on April 25th. And if, if things um hopefully clear up a little bit with the, with the coronavirus outbreak and there's an opportunity to, to, to go uh, up there. I was, I was going to plan on doing so. It's looking like right now I have to delay um, that commemorative, but, um, but in any case um, it's come April 25th, I think uh, uh, there'll definitely be attention around the fact that, you know, we're, we're six years into this and the problem isn't fully solved. Cool. Well, um, Mike, I know, uh, I'm glad we caught up and that you could share a lot of this story of, of uh, Flint from a, a different side, from someone that's from the community that spent 11 months there, you know, as a, as it being your hometown, but as also representing EPA. Um, it's great information. I want to, uh, I want to do another podcast with you sometime soon to kind of dive, dive back into the other EPA stuff we've worked on with water and, uh, oh, yeah. and outreach and, and everything. I think, uh, I think we got a whole other conversation to have there, but, uh, I appreciate it, man. Definitely. And I'm glad we caught up finally. Absolutely, brother. Thanks for having me on. And I really appreciate you, you know, raising awareness on not only an important issue, but, you know, an issue that's uh, near and dear to my heart. The, there's no better community in this nation than in Flint, Michigan. And uh, there's no more deserving community uh, that deserves to have the resources um, for them to have a functioning water system implanted. So um, I think by raising awareness on this issue, we're, we're serving them well and hopefully preventing something like that from happening in any other community across this nation. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, a great Flintstone, Micah Ragland right there. <laughs> Thanks a lot. We'll talk soon. Take care. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Thank you to the sponsor of this episode, the Flume Smart Water Monitor that tracks your home's water use 24-7, alerting you to excessive water use and leaks. Use promo code WATERLOOP now for 15% off at flumetech.com. You're in the Waterloop. Water, 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 water.